Support for Rewrite Radio comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio transports us back to the conversation between Marilyn Robinson and Andy Crouch from the 2006 festival. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio, Radio, a a podcast from the festival. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I am Susan Felch, and I teach in the English department at Calvin College. Marilyn Robinson is the author of four novels, Housekeeping, winner of the Hemingway Foundation Penn Award for the best first novel published in 1980, Gilead, winner of the 2005 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, Home, the winner of the 2009 Orange Prize for Fiction, and most recently, Lila. Robinson has also written books of nonfiction, including Mother Country, The Death of Adam, Absence of Mind, When I Was a Child, I Read Books, and The Givenness of Things. Her essays have appeared in such publication as Harper's, The Paris Review, and The New York Review of Books. Robinson's other honors include the National Humanities Medal and the Library of Congress Prize for American Fiction as well as nominations for both the National Book Award and the Man Booker. She spent much of her career teaching at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, from which she retired in 2016. That was the same year Time Magazine named her on its annual list of 100 Most Influential People. Andy Crouch, author of Culture Making, Playing God, Strong and Weak, and The TechWise Family, has also written about the intersection between culture and faith for Christianity Today, The New York Times, Books and Culture, and The Wall Street Journal. His work has appeared in the anthologies Best Christian Writing and Best Spiritual Writing. Now a partner for Theology and Culture at Praxis, Crouch has served as a campus minister at Harvard University with InterVarsity and edited Regeneration Quarterly. And now, Andy Crouch interviewing Marilyn Robinson at the 2006 Festival of Faith and Writing. I guess one of the um, best things about my job for this hour is I get to say what probably a lot of people want to say, which is just thank you, uh, especially for Gilead. And it just seems like a good thing to say at first that we, a lot of us feel that this book um, said something uh, we might have said uh, if we had been bright enough and <laughs> smarter and better looking and wiser 
and a little older. And it's just, it's just marvelous. Well, thank you. It's very gratifying. And I wonder if we can maybe start with you telling us a little bit about when you first knew you wanted to write this book. Well, I, it, you know, these things are so accidental. I, I uh, was invited by some people who were former students of mine to come out to, the, to Provincetown to give a reading. Um, and I had the Fine Arts Work Center is where they were, and, and, uh, which is open only in the winter. So I had been there once before, and I knew that, that being out there um, in the ocean, in effect, in the middle of the winter is very beautiful. So I said I would come if I could come at Christmas time. And then I uh, rented space in an old hotel so that my sons and I could spend Christmas there together. And um, they were delayed in coming. And so I was in a little upstairs room in this old hotel. Uh, this is beautiful Emily Dickinson New England room with the whiteboard floors and the sea saturated sunlight and so on. And, um, and I had my spiral notebook and my black pen and um, I began to think about uh, John Ames, in effect. I, I, I had a, a thought in my mind of an old man writing to a child as if he were writing to an adult while the child played on the floor beside him. And uh, I felt as if I, when I began writing from that point of view, as if, as if I were writing what he would have been writing, um, his voice seemed very clear to me. And a, and a great deal just proceeded from that. I wrote 93 pages of the book. And I, you know, you always feel very tentative about something like that. It's so strange a thing to do. So I sent 93 pages of it to my agent and I said, this is just for you to see. I just want you to know I'm alive. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, she sent the 93 pages to my editor. Of course, because I told her that she wasn't supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> and he scheduled the book for publication in the next fall. <laughs> but the, the response of my agent, who is the most complete and pure Manhattanite that has ever walked the face of the earth, was so positive and lovely and encouraging. And then my editor the same. I thought, great. So I, so I would write 40 or 50 pages more, send it off. Wonderful response from the agent and the editor. So I'd write, it was like being Charles Dickens, I'd write, you know. <laughs> so I wrote it almost as if it were a serial novel. Um, and it was, a, it was a pleasure to write. I enjoyed that book more than any book I've ever written before. That's really an, an understatement. Huh. And when you say, I wrote 93 pages, can you take us into that a little bit? Uh, did that just happen in an afternoon? Or? <laughs> oh, it's odd. Um, <laughs> when I... When I become sort of engrossed in what I'm writing, I don't really pay attention. You know, like people say, write three hours every morning or something like that. I write until I feel as if I am not being faithful to my sense of the fiction, and then I stop. 
So um, I might write. Now, this has the amount of time I spend writing has nothing to do with the amount of writing I get done. Hmm. Um, Many of us are familiar with that. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I will write a scene in a four-hour period, say. Sometimes I will spend three days writing, in effect, two paragraphs. You know, Uh, but you do what is necessary. You know, you just do what's necessary. And what are the signs that you're not being faithful to the fiction? Like, how do you know? What What are the? Is there a feeling or? A... Well, it's. Um, I mean, that you know, things wander out of character. Hmm. You've, hmm. You've, you're trying to make a, a character do something that that character you deeply know would not do, hmm. or you know the dialogue goes flat or whatever. Um, I've, I've written enough now, I've written long enough, that I, I pick up these cues from myself pretty quickly, hmm. which is a good thing. When I started out writing, I used to persist with something because I thought it was a good idea and I would ignore the intuitions that I had about what the text was rejecting. But I don't do that anymore. Hmm. Hmm. So had you um, started other things and just found they weren't working out over the years? And- yes. I fiddled around for quite a long time with the novel. I even read parts of it here and there. People remind me every now and then, and I think, oh, yes, that did happen. (laughs) Um, And when I find pieces of it floating around, I think that's not bad, you know. But the fact is I was never uh, committed to it. I never bonded with it. It was something that I was doing that, to a certain extent, felt clever to me, and I wasn't interested in that one. An editor who's um, here at the festival actually uh, wrote about Gilead that um, if he had received a kind of a one-page synopsis of it as a you know a little query you know with the the biblical name of the town and an aging pastor and there are a lot of tropes in here that are familiar very familiar in one sense uh, it, when you just state them baldly mm-hmm. uh, and. I mean, it might even sound, uh, I hope this isn't offensive to say, but it could even sound like sort of bad Christian fiction um, of a sort that some of us have had too much exposure to. Um, and yet, when you read it, it, those things that are at one level kind of obvious, um, they're, they're true. They're not, they aren't false or cliche. And this struck me in reading Housekeeping as well, that, you know, the symbolism is very uh, palpable. The the train and the lake are are on and the lake, especially, is on practically every page. I started sort of counting I, every page. I'd look, ah, oh, there's the lake. Yes, I thought it was coming, and and you, that could have been so heavy-handed, but it wasn't. And of course, you teach writing, so I'm wondering how you how you manage that. Uh, how do you manage to be sort of plain without being uh, cliched and facile? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I write what's on my mind. I try to, uh, as I said before, I try to stop when it seems to me that I'm not writing from the middle of my mind, and, and uh, that's all. Huh. So when students, maybe we could talk a little bit about the teaching process of it. When students bring you something that's 
forest. How do you help them? What are you, if we were your students, what would you say when we came with that? One thing that is important for, for teaching and something that I can usually rely on being able to do because we have a nice, vigorous program, a selective program, um, you can usually point to the strengths of, a, of, of someone's work. And it might only be a paragraph, you know? Um, but if you have something striking, some evidence that the student can do something remarkable, you can point them back toward that and, and, and use that as a touchstone for their writing. Because really the only, when people learn to write, it's because they have learned to write as they should write. And there really is no exterior model that you can impose on a writer if you wish that writer actually to, to be what he or she could be in terms of uh, attaining you know, the quality that, that he or she is capable of as, as an individual writer. Hmm. So you just find that place where they're being, where they are being true. Yes, exactly. And and I mean, there's nothing more instructive than than success, however momentary, whether it's a page or a scene or whatever, um, because often um, students can, in a way, writers can, in a way, find their way back to the moment in which they were thinking, you know, what that felt like, where that was, in effect. And that, that creates a beginning place for other writing. You know? hmm. You've been teaching um, for, for quite a while, teaching writing. And I'm wondering how, um, how you balance those two, teaching and writing. And An objective viewer may say I don't balance them terribly successfully. <laughs> I, in, I have enjoyed teaching very much. It's been a, a privilege to work with a, a lot of very fine young writers. It's a very interesting line of work. You, you have uh, sort of insights into thought and personality and, and the absorption of personal history and so on of a kind that I think people can rarely have. Um, and and the, one of the things that's wonderful about my teaching is that I have a seminar that I, can, that I teach every semester on any subject of my choosing. So I can talk at length in kind of uh, within the community of writers about whatever happens to be on my mind, <laughs> with chapter and verse, of course. But um, so in a way, I think it's been uh, very congenial. Uh, I think that I'm a better writer than I would have been if I had not done that kind of work. I'm not perhaps as prolific as I would have been without it, but that's a good trade-off, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And I read in one of the biographies that floats around that uh, you actually turned down or sort of left a writing-only fellowship to go back to teaching. Yes, I did. Five years. Five years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I survived for a year and a half. But, you know, I the metaphor that came to my mind forever, and it's still the metaphor that is... I'd read about how, how Inuit people, when some grandmother got to be really too old, they put her on an iceberg. I was paddling my iceberg back to shore. <laughs> Welcome back. Thank yeah, you. We're glad you came back. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, sometimes those awards. You now you've been receiving a lot of awards. You came um, actually last night from the Graumeyer Award for Religion, which has never been given to a novel before. Um, and they picked Gilead. Um, and I was th I was wondering. This is too personal a question. Just you know, tell me. But uh, uh, it's such a different thing from writing and then teaching. But then this this experience of being celebrated, you end up in places like this with people you've never met asking you intimate questions. How do you adjust to this, uh, to this new responsibility you have as someone who created something that is really touching people? Well, it's interesting to me that it does touch them. I'll be frank about that. One of the things that uh, one of the things about going out in public like this, although it certainly is, you know, not the sort of thing that I have done or do in ordinary life, is that you find out what people are thinking about and what they're responding to. Hmm. I think that we all, we live in this culture that basically um, is huge, diverse, um, full of roiling <laughs> passions of one kind or another. And uh, you sort of find out about it from the newspaper or whatever. But it gives you a very different sense of reality to go out into the country and talk to people. And, and it's mm. interesting and reassuring mm. and uh, gives me an opportunity to watch and listen, which is, these are the two disciplines upon which everything depends, I think. Mm. Mm. Are you uh, somewhat more, are you encouraged? You said reassuring. Are you encouraged about our culture by what you're encountering? <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, one of the things that I do, of course, is go from university to seminary to to civic theater to, you know. But when you do that, in town after town after town after town, and you find out that there are people who, who love the place where they are and are deeply committed to arts and writing and so on in the place where they are, um, in many, you know, beautifully restored theaters in, in all sorts of towns all across the country, you know, um, infinite numbers of, of reading groups. Um, it's, it's really extraordinary how many there are. Um, people that are, that talk to you passionately about books. Um, I read in the New York Times that there's a, a, a great, um, increase in the attendance at, at readings and lectures and so on that this comparable to uh, public attendance at readings and lectures in the 19th century, which was phenomenal. Mm. Um, and I, I've seen that myself, and other people I know that have the same kind of life I do have seen it. It's a very interesting thing, and interesting to know that it can rise in one in all over the country at the same time, yes. sort of as an unexpected thing. But all of this is uh, unmistakable cultural vitality of a kind that somehow or other we never credit ourselves with. A lot of intellectual interest, a lot of interest in the arts, and you see it and see it and see it. It's almost like the television has been fooling us. Like it's not as bad as it looks. If you... The television is a fool. <laughs> 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 and so it's it's not as bad as we all think it is. I mean, it's more hopeful. Are you? 
There was a wonderful, I'm not sure I can retrieve it, but uh, yeah, in, in one of your essays, you say it's my belief that a civilization can trivialize itself to death, that we have set our foot in that path. Um, and then you say, well, uh, not that that will be a big problem because by the time the end comes, the loss to the world will be very small. In other words, <laughs> if something trivial passes from the scene, well, so be it. You know, I, I stand by that. I mean, one of the things that bothers me is that there's an incredible difference between the level at which the public is addressed and the actual level that the public deserves and is capable of dealing mm, with. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that if there's anything... I, I think the major destructive force in the culture at, at this time is the fact that people do not approach one another with an appropriate respect and optimism. Hmm. Can you say a little? Uh, how, um, where, where does that happen? Where does that level of respect? Uh... Well, I mean, where, where does it not happen? Is that or, the question? Yeah, either. Well, I mean, we've talked about television. Hmm. Um, I live in Iowa, of course, which means that at some seasons of some years you can't basically go to the drugstore without encountering a presidential candidate. <laughs> <laughs> this has an interest of its own, but if you ever talk to them individually, you find out that they're sort of pleasant and presentable people with a reasonable range of interests and sympathies. If you see them giving their stump speech, you feel like hiding in the basement or something, you know? And, and what has happened is the, 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 this, this very hard prejudice of, against people in general, what they will tolerate, what they can understand, and so on, packages these people, you know, so that they are completely different as they present themselves. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that is the discourse of American public life. Right. That is the level at which the great issues are uh, addressed, at least so far as the public knows. And, um, you know, we might be tired of it. We may never have particularly wanted the problem. But the fact is that we are a huge power and that the fate of the world is very dependent on the quality of our thinking and of our responses and our understanding of what the issue is. And the level of discourse now is by no means sufficient to make us competent in the ways that we need to be. So that there's, there's almost two things happening simultaneously. There is a rich life, in fact, at the local level. Yes. Um, but that somehow when it's presented through, when it's mediated through media, it becomes hollow and, and shallow and... And, and sensationalistic and... Yeah. Somebody said to me once that a lot of I don't you know that a lot of the way that the media covers anything is is uh, determined economically, you know if if it's easier to to uh, follow a sensational trial for example than it is to try to articulate or to find people who can articulate uh, important economic issues or sure. or it's it's cheaper to keep uh, a, a a reporter in Hollywood than to send one to Budapest. You know, um, and so basically that, that kind of econo economics enters in as a form of uh, censorship in terms of what we actually 
uh, are allowed to know. And I sometimes wonder, I won't go too far down this path, but uh, whether a kind of a um, unintended conspiracy takes place where there are elites, if you want to call them that, who do think about economics seriously and, and who read a certain kind of literature, and they are actually in places of, of certain kinds of power, but that there's this almost conspiracy to keep that from uh, the, the public in a way. And, and there's, there's just almost two unconnected worlds. When I'm reading my New Yorker and my Atlantic, I feel like I'm in a completely different world from it if I happen upon a television and, and watch yeah. Fox News or something. Yeah. Or CNN. Yeah, yeah very true. I think it's, I mean, I, it's hard to know. Um, I think that a lot of economic choices are made on the basis of the fact that the people making them plan to retire in 20 years. <laughs> Let the next guy worry about it, you know. Um, I, think, I think that we don't even have to go to conspiracy theory. I think that people would say economics doesn't sell newspapers, and that would pretty much be yes, the end of the conversation. Right, right, right. Well, that's uh, a depressing direction. So let's uh, <laughs> stop thinking about things we can't control <laughs> and back to things that you've created that, that you work can't for the, No, we can't control them. <laughs> and you can't control them either now. <laughs> In fact, I want to ask you about this book, Housekeeping, and the first question I want to ask is, what is it like to be talking to people about a book that you wrote 25 years ago, or published 25 years ago? Is that strange, to have it stick around this long, and people still want to talk about it? Well, that's the kind of strange I can live with. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty remote, you know, and it, one of the things I think that that accounted for the writing that I did after housekeeping and the interval between the two novels is that um, I didn't want to write another housekeeping. You know, uh -huh. I um, had to have my sensibility in another place for a while um, because I had the things that I wrote, frankly, sounded like housekeeping to me. Hmm. And there's something creepy about feeling as if you are somehow you've imprinted yourself on yourself, you know. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't talk about it a whole lot. It has its own um, history of, of criticism. Uh, a lot of the criticism has carried it off in directions I would never have anticipated. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, I'm glad I wrote it. It's made many other things possible in my life. Right. It has been read, among other things, I think, as a, as a, a work of feminist literature, uh, in a way, uh, if, if only because... Um, all the principal characters are, are female and, and really operate without men uh, in their lives. I'm wondering if you intended that or have been surprised by those interpretations or how you respond to them. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I consider myself to be um, a, a terrific feminist, but what that means to me is that I do whatever I want to do and I do it as well as I can do it. Hmm. And that's my, own, that's my whole theory of feminism. <laughs> <laughs> and, if anybody wants to adopt it as a theory of masculinism, he is welcome to it also. <laughs> You'll share. I'll share. Yeah. I'll share. Um, it was it was a strange thing. I in there when I I went from Idaho to Brown, so I went from hmm. Idaho to Rhode Island, and um, so I was there suddenly cheek and jowl with a lot of very Eastern people. 
And I found out that they had a sort of, uh, they had seen the West through the lens of John Wayne, shall we say, hmm. and had a completely hokey and unreal notion of it. My family uh, homesteaded in Idaho. I would have been the fourth, I was the fourth generation of my family to be from Idaho. And uh, so I had a completely different narrative. And um, it was quite matriarchal. I mean, whether women were good at what they did, making clothes, making soap, cooking food, keeping gardens, keeping chickens, all these kinds of things which are in no way less demanding or interesting than tending cattle, <laughs> growing mm. rye. You know what I mean? Um, in any case, uh, the, the, the competence of women at creating environments that people could thrive in, that was mm. a very, very important thing. Mm. Um, and not only that, but they, they, you know, they tended to be in many cases the, the, the sort of the, the wisdom of the group, you know, ask grandma, ask grandma, you know. Um, and there are all kinds of great stories about them. So I wrote a story um, that, that uh, I mean, I, that I intended to have, you know, putting a, a, a woman's spirit into this environment where I knew one belonged. Hmm. That was a sort of thought of mine. At the same time, I didn't mean to have it only women. But it was one of those things where, you know, I would write a man in, and then he didn't go. It wasn't right. <laughs> I'd take him back out again, put another if one in. If only it were that easy in real life. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it is, though, uh, also a novel about the disintegration of those... Um, Womanly, uh, woman, womanly arts and uh, kind of failure in a way of, uh, or am I? Is that too simple? I wouldn't call it failure. No, uh, it's the haunting possibility of other choices. That's what it is. <laughs> I one of the things that I, I mean, where I grew up, it was very thinly populated and very full of mountains and woods at that time. Now it's full of people who have bought the mountains and woods, but. Um, the uh, there were hermits, you know. I mean, it was as if you know, if you wanted to do that, that was one of your options. You could mm. find an island somewhere, and that was always, I mean, respected by the community and and uh, attractive in many ways. Uh, the idea of of a solitary life, I suppose you would say, a contemplative life, uh, was it was not terribly uncommon. What, by world standards, certainly, and it had its it had its appeal. It was sort of like running off with the gypsies in another myth system or something like that. Mm. Um, we don't really think in those terms anymore, at least in the public discourse. And so, people see it as failure if you don't, you know, if you're not an if you're insufficient to your bourgeois calling. Um, mm. But I didn't mean it that way, and mm. I've never thought of it that way. Hmm. Hmm. So, even though they burned down the house, a house. <laughs> <laughs> and and so there's this sister figure in the book, um, the narrator sister who opts out of of that um, 
uh, more expansive definition of housekeeping that includes possibly burning it. Um, and, and we don't know quite what happens to her. She goes off to some more conventional life. Um, uh, I, I just can't, I, I, it just occurs to me, oh, that's interesting. Like, at the end of the book, she might be in Boston, which is pretty near Rhode Island. And that kind of constrained domesticity uh, is, is the alternative in a way. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me when I write fiction, and I was like, I write fiction all the time. No, I don't. But in the cases when I have written fiction, one of the things that's been interesting to me is to avoid invidious comparison. Avoid possibility. I mean, one of the things that I think is very interesting about, you know, physics, say, about light, is that two contrary things can be true at the same time. And I think that this is a, a, a truth about being that ought to be more generally respected. I like both my characters. I have a deep mm. admiration for housekeeping in the conventional sense, which I think you know, is, is clear from what I said earlier on about the role mm. of women mm -hmm. on the frontier, at the same time that I also have deep respect for wandering away. Mm. I think one of the things that is, is truly so helpful about your, your writing for us, many of us, is you, you somehow manage uh, what you just described. You manage to uh, affirm something while also um, allowing its negation to be in the, in the picture. Um, do you mind if I read you two quick little quotes and get your reaction to them? Um, towards at the very end of Gilead, there's this... Uh, Amazing paragraph. Uh, do you pronounce his name Bouton? Bouton. Bouton. Um, I think the statute of limitations has expired on you know giving away the end, right? Uh, <laughs> this won't quite give it away. Anyway, old Bouton, if he could stand up out of his chair, out of his decrepitude and crankiness and sorrow and limitation, would abandon all those handsome children of his, mild and confident as they are, and follow after that one son whom he has never known, whom he has favored as one does a wound. And this is the part I wanted to especially read. And he would protect him as a father cannot, defend him with a strength he does not have, sustain him with a bounty beyond any resource he could ever dream of having. And it reminded me so much of the very end of Housekeeping, where Lucille uh, does not listen, does not wait, does not hope, and always for me and Sylvie. And I thought about the, the apophatic tradition of approaching tremendous things by saying not. And <laughs> I, I hear you doing that. I wonder if you're aware of, is that something you've adopted as a way to approach those things? Well, I, perhaps I have, perhaps not intentionally. And I think, I mean, one of the things that, that interests me about, about representing human beings in these ways is that I think there is so much more in the experience of any human life than the manifest human life, you know? 
I mean, for example, I think that, that many of us exist in relation to other people toward whom we would be protective and generous beyond any realistic means that we have, any imaginable means that we have, you know? That, that the intention of kindness in many cases is something that is inexpressible because it can never move beyond a necessarily frustrated impulse because there are limits to how much you can protect and so on, radical limits. Um, the, in, the, in the case of, of the characters, I tend to think, like in housekeeping particularly, I was so aware of the thinness of representation of character in fiction, in the fiction that I was reading at the time. Hmm. And hmm. so in order to solve that problem, I, from my point of view, I arrayed potential across a series of characters. So there's a certain sense in which you could say that, that the grandmother and Sylvie are opposite ends of a continuum rather than being things that are opposed in a, in the, in, as in conflict, you know, with each other. Uh, because I think, I think that it's true that virtually all of us make choices and live with our choices and know in the fact of making them or recalling them, living with them, that we have chosen against many other things that were as live in our emotions, in our imagination, as the choices that we actually made. And that in many instances, uh, if, you, if you could ever know someone, if you could know someone the way God knows them, you might very well know that the, the crucial thing in, in their lives is what they did not do, mm. you know? Um, there, you know that potency, that tension. I think is is just part of the the electricity, the aura, the potency of of human individuals. Hmm. Um, you can't really talk about them if you if you don't acknowledge that. I think my uh, mother's mother was dying a few years ago of cancer, and I was with her a week before she died, and she we got talking about God, which we had never done. <clears throat> in my whole life, knowing her. And she said, the thing that worries me is the things I haven't done. It was the, the not, you know, that the way we say in the confession, we've left undone. Yes. And we, you know, it's, it's almost more that than, than what we've done that we feel somehow accountable for and that's missing. It's very powerful, very powerful. Things that, I mean, both the things that you should have done and have not done, and the things that perhaps you have not done out of out of self restraint, tact, love. You know, th those things inhibit also. And I think that there's something. You know, we have this. I mean, I think Freud. You know, was not a good moment in the. You know, but <laughs> <laughs> an incredible impulse towards simplification of things that um, you know that are not accessible to simplification. But one of the things I think that we lost actually is the fact that there is a, a tension that is a, that's a beautiful tension in our choices. That that the, the, the fact of, of of considering impulse, considering uh, longing or reflex or any of these other things, and and choosing among them and composing a life out of what you what you can accept and what you must reject or suppress. You know. This is, the, this is a, a, a powerful, legitimate, 
beautiful dynamic in human personality. Hmm. This is actually helping me to understand something that um, I wanted to talk about, which is that probably like many readers, um, I read Gilead first. Um, I had never read Housekeeping because I never read novels uh, enough. Um, that's a terrible thing to say at this festival. Strike me either, that. <laughs> Um, so I read Gilead, and um, I mean, it is a, a novel, among other things, about uh, commitment to a place and and um, and the grace of place and the grace of a, a vocation that isn't even just his own, but multi-generational, just staying in one calling, in a way. Um, and I thought, well, that's very beautiful, and it's very life-affirming, and all the nice things people have said about it. And then I read this book, in which the train and the lake win. I mean, and the town loses. And, and I thought, well, this is depressing. I mean, you know. Um, but what I'm hearing from you is helping me think we really need, I mean, we need maybe a few more books than these, but if we have these two, they help establish for us two realities that we, we need both of them. Um, is there an order to them? Like, could you imagine reversing the order and writing Gilead first and then housekeeping or the other way around? Or? Not really. I, I wrote housekeeping under kind of particular circumstances. Part of it I wrote when I, I was writing my dissertation and I was just writing metaphors because I was interested in them. Hmm. But um, then I went to France to teach in a university in France and, and uh, it was on strike all the time. <laughs> and so I was out in the middle of the French countryside actually I had a kind of country house and the little neighborhood kids would come and beat on the windows because they were, we were novelties and they were very interested charming children but you know not ideal from the writing point of view so I would close the shutters and that made the room completely dark where I was working and I had a little lamp and I was writing in a spiral notebook, which is what I always do. And uh, in that sort of sensory deprivation environment in the middle of France with this radiant countryside all around me, I was remembering Idaho. Hmm. And it was a very, um, it was a very intense experience of deep memory. I couldn't believe the things that I was actually able to recover, you know, what grew where under what circumstances and that sort of thing. And uh, I think that the, I think that the novel grew out of that circumstance in a, in a very strong degree, mm. and, you know. And it is deeply about a place. And, and mm -hmm. uh, in that way, it's not at all a novel of transience. I mean, it's about exactly. almost the too muchness of place. <laughs> It is about the too muchness of a place. It's a, that's a, an amazing place, that lake, you know, it's Pondere Lake. Uh -huh. And uh, it's so deep that in the Second World War, they, they tested submarines in it. They had oh a goodness. naval base there and so on. It's a huge glacial lake where people who swim in it can die of exposure in the middle of the summer. My goodness. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the other place, uh, or the place of Iowa, the shining star of radicalism. <laughs> <laughs> Those of us who grew up with Field of Dreams think of it as, you know, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. But 
twice in Gilead. Iowa is the shining star of radicalism. And you're helping us, I think, I mean, help me out here. Not, I'm not from the Middle West. I'm from the Northeast. And uh, you're helping us to recover a history in these places that are thought of as very conventional and mm -hmm. conservative, that there's this history of wild radicalism. Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Um, an enormous number of utopian communities and so on all over Iowa, all over the Middle West. Um, when when um, Frederick Engels he wrote a, a thing called The Viability of Communistic Societies, every one of them was an American utopian society. A lot of them were, Brook Farm was one of them that he listed, uh, a lot of them were German language uh, utopian communities scattered through the Middle West, which of course he could be aware of because they were, you know, at that point in his life, he had more access to what was German language. But in any case, um, it's interesting to know that what they meant by communistic societies was Brook Farm. It seems like something we could have talked over about 50 years ago and maybe saved us some trouble. <laughs> 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 but in any case, um, <laughs> it was Iowa. What's the problem with Iowa? <laughs> well, you know, the Amana colonies, right? you know, I mean, there were lots of, of, of societies out there that call themselves communistic societies. It was not right. a condemned word at that point. Right. Um, but in any case, uh, Iowa, banks were illegal in Iowa to about the period of the Civil War because they were considered to cause accumulations of capital. <laughs> They, I they do why. tend to do that. <laughs> um, but it was, President Grant did call Iowa the shining star of radicalism. And he was speaking specifically of, uh, of its abolitionist activities, which huh. were very powerful, very potent. Huh. Um, do you uh, hope to hmm, retrieve that in a way? I mean, to retrieve that sense of... Um, getting down to the root of things. Do you think that's viable in Iowa now, for example? Or is it really lost or his, just history? I think that people are always pleased to find out the history of the place where they are. Especially, I mean, a lot of people are, are, are sort of touched by that history because there was, there was a lot of idealism and enlightenment. The, you know, those little colleges that are all over the Middle West, which is, you know, which, which is the sort of thing that uh, one notices when one comes in from the outside. They, they're often very old. They're often older than the, God knows than the state they're in. You know, I mean, they're hmm. among the first things that happen in the territories. They look like little New England colleges. They have little New England clabbered communities around them, typically, you know. Hmm. Um, and it's because they were founded in the 1830s and 40s by people that came in from New England um, and upstate New York. Um, a lot of them from Yale and Andover and Amherst, which were all very strong anti-slavery uh, centers. This, there were two bands of Yale divinity students who came into, the, into Iowa um, who founded colleges that looked like Johnny Appleseed, you know? Hmm. Um, these very, <laughs> you know, it's very charming, you know, these young fellows who came to what was nowhere then and lived in under all imaginable difficulty and helped to establish these very fine little colleges which immediately, uh, the minute they were, you know, up and running, were teaching Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Shakespeare and, you know, Milton. 
Um, they had a system called the manual labor system that still has certain survivals like Berea College, um, where everyone who came, everyone in the college worked, uh, did the, you know, there were little villages in effect. And, and so, um, you know, the, the president of the college would take care of the beans and the peas, you know, and the, and the vice president would take care of the hogs and then the undergraduates would carry the water and, you know, um, <laughs> Mount Holyoke College was based on this system also, and uh, Mary Lyon, who was the first president of Mount Holyoke College, was responsible for making all the bread that was eaten in the college, you know. And, um, but the idea was to make it so that there would be no financial obstacle to education, and so that uh, the stigma would be removed from labor, which was a very important part of the abolitionists' uh, intentions. Mm. They were all on the Underground Railroad. Um, they they had uh, an amazing impact, I think, on the on the culture of the Middle West. Um, it's it's interest. One of the things that's interesting is that they remained fine colleges. You know, I mean that whatever magic these people had took, even though those colleges themselves don't remember where they came from. Mm -hmm. Oberlin is a, is a great right. example. I mean, you simply cannot overstate the importance of Oberlin because it it was integrated by gender, by race from the beginning. And it sent out what they would have called missionaries who were simply people who started other colleges, you know, and, uh, and uh, recruited people to the cause of abolition and so on. Uh, very, very powerful institutions of very, very generous spirited people. I think it's, a, it's certainly a, a, a history worth being aware of. Carlin College is another of these. They're all over the place. Knox College, Central College. Hmm. You um, have such an eloquent way of speaking about place, and especially small towns. And um, for those of us who don't live in those places, um, I live in suburban Philadelphia, kind of wandered around New England. And, uh, I think it's easy to feel uh, jealous of, of what you have. And of course, you live in a smallish town uh, now. And um, do you think there's any hope for us who live in cities and suburbs? <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think, you know, if I didn't, I mean, I've always sought out small towns because I, I grew up in them, I know how to live there. I'm used to, you know, not only that, but university small towns, which I think is somewhere right. near heaven, in fact, because right. you have the, you know, the, the art museum and the symphony orchestra and, you know. That's kind of cheating, really. It is cheating, yeah. I, I confess. <laughs> <laughs> but if I didn't live in a town like that, I would certainly live in a big city because I love the cultural density of big cities. I, yeah. You know, um, even, I mean, Louisville is a good-sized city. I don't want to say even, but you know, the art museum there is, is very, very, very impressive. And I, I barely was able to walk through it, but I love things like that. I'd spend days in there if I could, you know. Huh. Um, there are certain things that cities just have that I am very capable of enjoying. <laughs> Can they produce good novels, though? Because it seems like a lot of good novels are in small towns. I just, it's, these are the places where you have a, in some ways, a, a, a clear sort of 
setting, you know, and a limited number of characters in a way, and time, people have time to relate and grow. And I'm just, I'm, I'm short on novels. Of course, I don't read very many novels, so that's why. But, uh, <laughs> but the ones I've run across, I just, I keep coming back to ones that are in small towns. Is there something about that setting that just helps the novelists do their job, do you think? That might be true. I think that fam that familiarity is is so important. You know, I, I when I, I have kids that come to me as students from Manhattan, and they tend to write about Manhattan. You know, because they the, all the the material of it is available to them. They know what things look like and smell like and so on. You know, um, it's. I think that at, at an early age, I was imprinted with small townness. Um, I like the limited props of a small town, you know, but that's just because I'm I'm familiar with that. It's an, an, a comfortable world for my imagination. I couldn't I couldn't be um, sufficiently confident that I was doing a city justice, doing it right, you know. Mm -hmm. We're here at Calvin Cod, so we have to talk for a minute about Jean Covin. Are we? Uh, maybe. <laughs> In this wonderful essay, uh, very uh, cunningly titled Marguerite de Navarre, which ends up being, for the first half, all about John Calvin. You insist on spelling his name Jean Calvin to remind us that, you know, who is this John Calvin? He never <laughs> right. called himself that. Um, and, and uh, uh, you know, what don't we know about Calvin that we ought to know, even at a place like Calvin College? Probably a lot. <laughs> Calvin is an interesting historical problem for me because uh, I'm, he's very, very important. You can't read any cultural history of, of the Western world without pe people just listing off the things that derive from Calvin. I mean, it's, it, you know, the modern French language, for example, you know. I mean, he's, he is one of the great figures in, in the history of Western civilization. Um, he has been the subject of a very, very, very determined polemic for a long time. And his legacy tends to be among people who think, well, he must have been a pretty bad guy then, <laughs> and throw him over. You know what I mean? There are, I mean, one, the major distinctive religious tradition in the United States of America proceeds from Calvinism. But nobody knows what he wrote. Nobody knows when he lived. Nobody knows anything about what in their tradition proceeds from his thought, etc. So I thought, you know, I, I mean, it, there's something that drives me crazy about these caps. It's part of the thing about the, the history of the Middle West, which has a huge, enormous, eloquent history that the people living there don't know. Why do you have Civil War uniforms in your attic? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's just, how can you bear not to know? <laughs> but in any case, um, so I started reading Calvin. I, I started reading, actually, um, in association with... Uh, Herman Melville, Moby Dick, because that's such a, a uh, theological book that I wanted to read the theology that he would have been in conversation with. And I did, and I found it very illuminating on both sides. But what I think if you had to describe Calvin uh, 
he's he is a pretty classic example of a of a Renaissance humanist. Hmm. Um, his celebrations of what human beings are are as lyrical and as exalted as anything you you will find in any literature. Now this, for some reason, is an and at the same time. He thought we we were up to some pretty bad stuff, you know. <laughs> now th these two things together are not opposed. They exist very much simultaneously with each other. Um, I, when I look at the world, when I read the newspaper, I think what wonderful things we are, what terrible things we are, absolutely simultaneously. I think that there's a huge mercy built into the fact that these things are true simultaneously. That when you look at what we have done and what we do, you don't have to abandon the other perception that we are brilliant and poignant creatures, you know? So, anyway, I, I, um, the, there's a parody version of Calvin that only alludes to his awareness of human fallenness without any notion of his celebration of the exalted condition of human, of the same human beings who have fallen, you know. A, an enormous amount of the impact that he had in the traditions that were influenced by him for, for, for a very long time had a strong emphasis on the celebration of humankind, which of course is the unusual part of it, and uh, all sorts of arguments for democracy and so on come directly out of Calvin's humanism. Um, it, it's, in a way, in order for us to understand the theological underpinnings for many of us of egalitarianism um, hmm. of all kinds, hmm. I think we have to go back and see where they were first articulated and how they were articulated, you know. But for some reason, he has been treated as if he were a dull and dreadful figure. And he's lost for those reasons. And I, I think hmm. it's a great pity. Of course, I'm doing my little best. I, nobody else writes. <laughs> nobody else writes. Smuggles Calvin in under the cover of Marguerite de Navarre. <laughs> well, and you smuggle them in, in in Gilead in a wonderful way. I mean, because it is about that range and and how those can be true both at once. And you know, um, it occurs. I mean, I feel sometimes uh, living in the place and uh, class that I do that. Um, God has been forgotten in the way that Calvin has been forgotten. I mean, you say in your essays to effect that uh, we don't even pay the past the compliment of refuting it. We simply have forgotten it. We've forgotten Calvin. We, we just assume we know what he was and we can dismiss him. And of course, many of us as believers um, in God feel that a similar conspiracy of forgetfulness has has sort of fallen over the whole Christian testimony to what it is to be human. How, how glorious, how terrible. Yes. Um, and somehow your book has snuck through those defenses, and, and you've said that, right? Plainly said it, you know? <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that was an assumption in, in classic American literature and classic Reformed tradition is the idea that one is always in the presence of God that thought, experience, memory, learning, invention, the list goes on and on and on, I'm paraphrasing Calvin, 
All of these things happen in, in a, the most intimate possible simultaneous conversation, in effect, with God, you know. So that the, you know, that your being is your soul, in effect. You know what I mean? Your soul is not something that you have put on a shelf somewhere and plan to look after later or, you know. Um, but, but actually the experience of life itself is the experience of the soul, which is the experience of God. You know, um, I think that that um, in order to have a proper respect for oneself or and for others, this is a very necessary model, and it is forgotten. And God, for even in traditions that are much too profound to deal in this sort of thing, it's like God is painted on the ceiling or something. You know, I mean, we got over that a long time ago, but I think that we're back to it now. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if I can ask you one last question that builds on that, which is um, there's this marvelous thing that John Ames says at one point, uh, nothing true can be said about God from a posture of defense. You want me to come in on that? <laughs> well, I can give you a little more of a question to okay, answer. Okay. Just that I just think it's easy to be in a posture of defense in a world that has forgotten. And yet, I, when I read that, I think you're right. I don't think we can. I think that robs us of the ability to say anything true and useful. Um, so maybe you can help us envision what the alternative posture is, what the true posture is, from which we might speak about God to the world. Well, I think one of the things that people do when they feel defensive about religion, which I think everybody does at times, uh, they, they, um, they, they create a smaller model of God in the course of trying to make something, to make an argument. You know, as if, uh, well, yes, I do understand him. Yes, I can describe him. Yes, I know how to prove his existence. When none of these things is consistent with a conception of God that should exceed explanation, should exceed defense, should exceed proof, you know. Um, it's as if we were trying to demonstrate the existence of, of a human personality or something like that, which I think is, a, is a, an extraordinary error of conception in the first place. And then the conversation simply can't be good from that point on. So we have to be willing to not shrink God in the process of speaking exactly, of him. and also not to uh, be unfair to God in the course of attempting to protect ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marilyn Robinson, thank you very, very. You're Heartfelt thanks to Marilyn Robinson and Andy Crouch for this gem from our archive. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Theme music is June 11th by Andrew Starr. You can find more information about the Center and its signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.calvin.edu and festival.calvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Subscribe to Rewrite Radio on iTunes and leave us a review to help others find this podcast. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from the Festival Archives.